Well, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. If you're visiting for the first time today, we are uh, going through a series through the, the uh, letter, uh, general epistle of Peter. And so we've just begun not too long ago. So you came at just the right time. You keep on coming. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And uh, we're going to try to uh, give a concise treatment to this as we prepare our hearts to go to the communion table together shortly. I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand as we hear the Word of God and give attention to His voice and reverence to His authority in it. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Listen to the Word of the Lord. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We open it now, as always, with expectation that you have something to say to us in it, that it is not just information or instruction, that it is truth and life. And we open ourselves to receive the word of truth and the word of life that you have for each of us today. And so would you speak your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and for our good always. Move me out of the way, Lord, and use me as your instrument today. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Concerning this salvation, he begins, and I've just titled my message that, Concerning this salvation. In Psalm 51, 12, David wrote, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Every Christian can identify with that prayer. Or at least I think every honest Christian who reflects on his own heart regularly can identify with that prayer. For one reason or another, at one time or another. For David... That prayer came out of the heavy weight of conviction he felt for his egregious sin with Bathsheba and against her husband, against God, and actually even though with Bathsheba, against Bathsheba as well. That heavy weight of conviction of his sin left him saying, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. For many Christians in the early church... That prayer could have been made out of a place of affliction because they were experiencing routinely various trials and afflictions and persecutions and hardships. For many of us, it could be either of those two things or just the attraction 
and distraction of good things in the world. That is to say, for you and me, the, the, the topic of salvation can be so familiar that it becomes a topic of sort of boredom to, to us. Yawn, yawn, tell me something else. Because we're so attracted to other things of this world that, the, that the, the goodness of God toward us sort of loses its luster. It becomes, you know, familiarity breeds contempt, so to speak, and it become, can become a, a, a topic of that sort. One of Peter's aims in his letter was to address that very reality. Again, in their case, they are being troubled by, grieved by various trials. The heat is turned up on them, as it were. And so he's reminding them of things that they have that are true and things that are ultimate. He wants to draw their attention back to that and, and, and help them to find their joy in those realities. It's a rather simple message, actually, in these verses. Um, but he, th- there's enough language about you know, prophets and angels and, and the like, that the, the simplicity of that may uh, get lost on a first reading. And so I want to do something uh, that I, I don't know that I've ever really done here, but I'm going to put up on the screen these same verses out of a different translation, the New Living Translation. This comes out as a little bit more of a paraphrase, but in terms of reading those three verses together and and understanding the point, this may help make it a little bit easier. But it says, it says it this way. This salvation was something that even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's sufferings and his great glory afterward. They were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit set from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching all these things happen. And so here's, here's really a, a kind of another summary of what he's just said. That the, the Old Testament prophecies about grace were talking about this salvation that he's reminding, of, uh, reminding them of. This salvation that we talk about frequently, especially in the evangelical world. It's one of those Christian words. You, you know, if you, were, if you had a vocabulary list, you know, that you had to memorize, as a Christian, salvation would come early in the course, right? That's a frequently used word in evangelical circles. We know that one. We use that one a lot. But he's saying the Old Testament prophecies about the grace of God were talking about this salvation. It was all leading to this. All that was leading to this. Remember we said in the very opening verses of this letter that that he reminds us we are, he's writing to elect exiles of the dispersion and their words that, that, that tie us into the story of God's people. Their story is our story. We've been written into it. And this 
kind of attaches to that similar message. All of that old stuff was pointing to this, leading to this. They were talking about this. The good news that you heard, the grace you've received, the new birth you've been given, the living hope that we read about, the inheritance we have that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And you, too, are being guarded by faith for the salvation that awaits you, he said in verse 5. All of that is what the Old Testament prophets were talking about. And it was so wonderful that the prophets themselves investigated further to understand what they were saying. That's a little bit of an odd phrase, isn't it? But it's as if, it's as if the prophets announced things out loud and then said, wait, what? What did I just say? What did I just write? I got to check into this a little bit more. That's kind of what he's getting at. The prophets searched and inquired carefully to understand what they were saying. Because it was so wonderful. So wonderful that even the angels wanted to take notice of what was going on. They longed to look on these things. That word sort of carries with it the idea of, uh, again, sort of taking a peek at something. That is, looking at something that you you can't just automatically see, and maybe that you're not intended to see. So you think about uh, looking up over the fence to see, you know, what's beyond, or, or looking under the crack in the door, or, 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 you know, peeking through the blinds to see what you just wouldn't automatically see, and maybe what you don't want somebody else to know you're looking upon. It's sort of, you know, taking a peek. This is, this is kind of what that word uh, means that the angels, it's, it's, it's not revealed to them per se, but they, they take notice. It is so wonderful, this salvation. The question for you and me today, is it so wonderful? I don't mean that you would answer that right if you were given a test. I know you all would. I mean, in your own heart today, is this salvation that wonderful? Or is your heart weighed down by burdens of this world, uh, of, of just the, your present circumstances? Is, uh, is your heart weighed down by your own sin? Or is your heart carried away and taken captive by the attractions and allurements of this world right now so that any of those dim or dull the wonder of this salvation. What is it that makes it so, so wonderful? What is salvation even? And again, I know you, you, you sort of know the answer to this, um, but I want to I actually approach this in a fairly... Uh, again, concise and simple way so that we, we understand it in terms of the narrative that the Bible tells us, the big story that the Bible tells. We talk about salvation very often in, in outlines, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death and so forth. We, and and we, we talk about the gospel that way and 
salvation that way, the Bible tells it as a, a story. And from the beginning, it unfolds until this that's revealed in the New Testament, until this day that you and I are living as Christians. And so let me remind you of that narrative and then remind ourselves too of what it is, what it means that we've been saved. What have we been saved from? Well, the story is, in the beginning, God created everything, including humans, in His image. We might think of it as a king who establishes a distant colony. It's just in this case, he actually created the colony (laughs) and then populated it with creatures he made from the dust of the earth. But he created humans, our first parents, in his image, charged them with uh, reflecting his glory and establishing his rule on the earth. You remember that. Those are basic things. But again, think of this not in terms of just I don't know, religious, theological sort of propositions and think of it in narrative form that it's intended. A king has populated his colony with uh, co-regents, those people who are supposed to rule with him in his place. It's not unlike what the Roman emperor would have done by way of provincial governors even in this very age in which this letter was written, when Nero would have had a governor ruling over Palestine. It's not a real good analogy for God, but, uh, but again, this is, this is sort of what the, the, the story, that narrative depicts for us. He created humans in his image to reflect himself, to be image bearers, to reveal God on the earth, to fill the earth with his glory, and to establish his rule. But you know what happened. They rebelled against God, and they end up being lured by God's archenemy. Lured over to his side, and and then they are taken captive by him. Think of stories here. I mean, again, for us to appreciate the reality of this kind of thing, like what is being revealed to us there? Think of stories you've heard about human trafficking. Uh, They're all awful. But you think of some common ones that involve uh, some young woman, let's say, for example, a 16-year-old girl meets a guy online. They have a little bit of a relationship enough that he invites her, encourages her to leave home and go meet him at some place. Parents find out about it, say, no, you aren't. And she says, yes, I am. And goes. And it all seems wonderful until suddenly it doesn't. And she's drawn into a darkness of a sort she never imagined and can't get out of it. Now that is 
a little bit fictional, but you know it's based on reality. I don't have a particular news story in mind, but I'm not making all that up, right? That's real-life stuff. That is rebellion that leads to captivity. And then if we wanted to carry the analogy further, if, if, he, if he begins to give her heroin or fentanyl or some kind of drug, she's taken captive by that too. And that becomes enough to keep her in the whole cycle, right? She couldn't get out of that addiction long enough to get out of the situation she's in. Rebellion that leads to captivity. You with me on that? You got a picture here. Okay, this is what the Bible communicates to us about in the beginning. He created a good world with image bearers who are supposed to rule on his behalf. Instead, they rebel and they are taken captive by the enemy. That's the sort of predicament Adam and Eve walked into and all human beings have been born into captivity since then. Born into slavery and yet become willing rebels ourselves. It's not like we're excused by that. But again, that's another story. I don't want to go down any sort of rabbit trail there. But so what? Okay, so that's the narrative. Rebelled against God, become uh, captive to the enemy that we joined. Well, it says two things about then what salvation does, because that's our predicament. And when we are saved, uh, we're saved on a couple of uh, huge levels in general. But salvation means, number one, that we're spared from the death penalty. Now, again, we know this from our, again, sort of evangelical evangelism outlines and that kind of thing, right? The wages of sin is death. But I want to think about it, in a, again, in a little bit more narrative terms so we appreciate and understand kind of what's being told to us here. We're, we're, we're spared from the death penalty or saved from the judgment of God. We committed high treason against the king of the universe. Do you get that? Because people talk sometimes about sin and judgment as if, oh, what's the big deal? Come on, God, take it easy. But people never talk about traitors that way. Right? Treason is a big deal. Always has been. What happens to people who commit treason? Uh... Well, the death penalty is still, under U.S. law, uh, one of the options. Not necessarily mandated, right? But it's still one of the options. And historically, that has been the case. And nobody really questions that. When somebody is clearly guilty of treason, that's the penalty. People might beg for mercy, but they certainly don't argue for it. Prison would be an act of mercy in that situation, right? We received the death penalty for committing treason against God. High treason against the king of the universe. 
we've received the death penalty. But by God's grace, Jesus was put to death on our behalf. Now, does that, does that help at all to reframe the story a little bit? We are saved then when this salvation that is so wonderful is so wonderful in part because we're saved from the judgment of God. We've got no defense. We've got no argument to make on our behalf. We can only fall upon the mercy of God, which He's made provision for through Jesus, saved from the judgment of God, spared from the death penalty. And secondly, that narrative tells us salvation means that we are rescued from captivity. The plan of salvation, God's initiative in doing that, He goes in on a rescue mission to liberate us from slavery. And then, rather than putting us into prison for the crime against Him, actually cleans us up and gives us a seat at the table. It's crazy, right? That's crazy. That's way beyond mercy. But we're saved from captivity, and it's captivity to sin and captivity to Satan. I would, there are a number of places in the New Testament that um, speak to this. I'm really only going to show you one of each, but just to say the Bible speaks in these terms. That, that we are captive to our sin, we're captive to Satan apart from the grace of God. Romans 6, verses 12 and 14. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make, it, make you obey its passions. For sin will have no more dominion over you. Both of those things say, suggest sin does have dominion over us except by God's grace and power. It goes on in, ch in chapter 6, by the way, if you wanted to read it, to, to use the, the term slaves specifically about that. That he who sins, Jesus said, is a slave to sin. We've been taken captive by it. In the human trafficking analogy, this would be the heroin. <laughs> You know, sin itself just, just keeps us captive. It's like Satan doesn't even have to be very active at a certain point. Our flesh does plenty to keep us captive to sin. But we are captive to Satan as well. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 and 26 say, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured to him to do his will. Escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We are by nature, Ephesians 2 told us, children of wrath because we consorted with the enemy. We were by nature children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, you remember? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. 
and raised us up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. That in the ages to come, he may show the riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. He is glorified because he did it this way. He is glorified by this salvation, not some other salvation. He's glorified by doing crazy good toward us. Not just pardoning us. Not just sparing us from the death penalty. I thought about that when I wrote that phrase. Because it's better than that. (laughs) He didn't just spare us and send us off. He made us part of the family and gave us an inheritance that is secure. No chance. You're going to mess it up. And trust me, I know, if you were given a chance, you would. Because I would too. It is that wonderful. Because he is that wonderful. And maybe, as we conclude, maybe it would, uh, that, all of that will shed light on Jesus' announcement in the synagogue at the outset of his ministry. You may remember this. When he, he went to the synagogue, he actually reads from one of those prophets Peter just spoke about who was speaking about this salvation even, in, even when they didn't understand what they were speaking about. Jesus read from Isaiah 61 and then said, Yeah, that's talking about me. And here's what he said. Luke chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Does that good news sound a little bit better to you today? It would have been good news if he declared the Lord's pardon. He didn't. He declared. He proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. We received the pardon plus favor and liberty from our captivity. This salvation is so wonderful. The prophets searched and inquired to understand it more deeply. So wonderful. The angels longed to look on it. And so wonderful that you and I have every reason to have renewed joy this morning. Because in spite of how difficult our present circumstances might truly be, or in spite of how good our circumstances might appear to be, that would distract us from the surpassing goodness of what he has done for us through Jesus And that makes him all the more worthy of our praise today. Let's pray together. God, we praise you and thank you.
and acknowledge once again, this is such a familiar subject, it's easy for us to tune it out. We might hear the word salvation and it just flips a switch in our head that either makes us nod off or quit paying attention or uh, act as if, yeah, I already know all this. On a certain level, that's true, and yet what's also true is that we need our hearts to resonate uh, with that, with the, with the truth, the reality of that. We need, Lord, for, for our hearts to sing along with that proclamation of good news to us. So, Lord, would you restore to us today the joy of our salvation? That we have hope and inheritance, blessing, goodness, and abundance that awaits us, that is worth waiting for, it's worth persevering for, and it is worthy of all of our longing for it. Would you take our hearts there today? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.